Otherwise, is it sounding okay? Yeah, the, your audio is fantastic. I'm actually surprised at how good the quality is. It's my fancy microphone, isn't it? Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Dom. How are you doing today? I'm floating, because today we have Neil Ferguson. If, in case somebody doesn't know who he is, he is uh, Scottish, uh-huh. economic historian. He teaches at Stanford. Currently, it, he wrote a variety of fantastic books. He's not shy about his political view. He is one of those honest and sharp historians that at the same time apply severe rigor to their work and show how you can use that to think about current events. Right. He's he's a very well-known um political geopolitical commentator you might want to say. He can he can comment on anything from, you know, what's going on in Europe to the US to China. He's very savvy and as he said brings that kind of long long-term perspective to the current moment. As I mentioned in the talk, his book, The Great Degeneration, was, I remember, it was almost six years ago, was a really formative book for me in terms of rethinking some of my unexamined assumptions about the financial market specifically. I remember because the first two or three chapters there were about the financial collapse and the regulatory response to it gave me a lot of pause about things that I sort of took for granted. Mm-hmm. I think I even brought some of this up in our conversation with uh, Professor Zora Goshen from Columbia University and in in other talks. Either way, he is one of those people. And also, I should say, there's a lot that, that I'm happy to disagree with. Mm-hmm. We hash out some disagreements in this talk, and I'll leave it as a mystery for now as to which. <laughs> but other topics I've, I've mentioned in, in previous conversations and which also, I guess, I leave as a mystery for anybody who wants to go on a treasure hunt and uncover my rich relationship with the intellectual work of Neil Ferguson. I long for the day when we have a fan base that goes hunting for Easter eggs in our back catalog of what? Adam loves Neil Ferguson moments. <laughs> I long for that day. <laughs> we'll know we made it when we have a Adam Hart Ferguson subreddit. <laughs> we actually invited Neil regardless of his new book we just, mm-hmm. we just wanted to talk to him but we it was a very opportune time because he just came out with his new book doom the politics of catastrophe sounds better when when he pronounces it yeah. does that i can't do a scottish accent but yeah i can't you, do any you, accents you to be fair. freaked out about his accent quite a bit i think, <laughs> I think at least seven times in the, in the justifiably but yeah his book doom the politics of catastrophe is to give it a brief summary a wide survey of how human societies interact with calamities politically institutionally and culturally he looks at all types of disasters from political to natural to to, to calamities of engineering to pandemics of course and asks how how do societies respond to these events how do they go on to change and evolve in the aftermath of these events? And how do they, and this is perhaps the most interesting part for me, 
How do they go on to explain the catastrophe? Then how do they tell the stories of these events over generations? Because it's these stories and these models of understanding that then become the tools that define the quality of their response the next time an event like this occurs. This has ramifications not just for the way that politics is done and the way that governments create their vocabulary of disaster response, but also for the way that history is produced. And that raises the question, to what extent do historians who spend their time looking backwards possess useful knowledge to steal society ahead of the dangerously unpredictable future. And he also gets into the the inverse of that, I guess, which is kind of where we're at today and the, the kinds of thinking that have made us so woefully unprepared for dealing with disaster. Which to some extent is our, our over-reliance and our ability to model the future, which is incomplete at yes. best. Before we go into it, my... Question for you today, Vanessa, before we... <laughs> okay. This is something that's been weighing on my heart for a week, and I've just been waiting oh gosh. for this chance. Have you been paying attention? Probably not. <laughs> I'm just, just going to preemptively say it right there. I probably haven't, but go ahead. So you know how it's a pet peeve of mine to... Or at this point, it's you might call it a fetish, to grassly call attention to the bipartisan lack of principle when it comes to our public discourse. And perhaps nowhere is it more obvious than issues of free speech. Cancel culture is something that we've talked about a lot, this tragically named phenomenon. And it's been a point that I've been hitting like a freaking broken record, how sad it is that it's become something that the right gets to pretend to own just because of the the sorry state of the mainstream left right now that people on the right get to to claim themselves the protagonists and defenders of free speech which sometimes is true but i was always this is not should not be something that is divided between the parties this is something that in a normal world i would think the left would be very clear cited on. And then this week, as, as I guess you, you haven't heard, a young journalist called Emily Wilder, who was recently hired by the AP, was the target of a turd-finding expedition by right-wing outlets who would usually decry the horrors of cancel culture. And what they found were a number of tweets from her past where she expressed a very lefty agenda, a very critical of Israel, and specifically called the late Republican donor and infamous Jew, Sheldon Adelson, a mole rat. And in response, the AP fired her because she was seen as a liability that would, see, that would make their coverage of the Israeli-Palestine conflict seem biased. I suspect this was also influenced by the context of the Associated Press offices being brought down in Gaza by Israel, but we're not going to get into that. The bottom line is that this is stupid. Obviously, she should not have been fired. Her tweets, though I revile them, and I, I, I don't particularly respect a lot of the opinions that she expressed in them, obviously should not be cause for firing her. 
And what's egregious about the way this conversation is happening right now is how willing everybody, or not everybody, but how willing are so many public commentators to show how completely wanting in principle they all are. So people who get paid to write daily about the scourge of cancel culture, which they're correct about, suddenly pile on this girl. I mean... Because I guess, because I guess if you can't beat them, join them? Yeah, but also, like, I mean, whenever you have a situation where you have an injustice done to you, the natural instinct is to return that, eventually return that injustice. I mean, it's not very common that people turn the other cheek, you know? Sure, I understand the human impulse. It makes them morally defunct. But then, almost more gallingly, people in left-leaning mainstream outlets, some of the biggest names, who have spent years telling us how cancel culture isn't really a thing and certainly not something that we should worry about. You know, they, they like saying, well, if you, they, they have certain cliches. Like one of them is, if, if you can't stand by, behind what you're saying, then that's your problem, then you shouldn't have said it. Or the First Amendment doesn't give you a right to a job at the AP or wherever you got fired from. Suddenly, these same people are up in arms, had a come-to-Jesus moment. And for a week, the, those same outlets published story after story, opinion after opinion piece, pointing at this event and saying, this is a chilling moment in journalistic history. This is, a, this is a dangerous precedent. This is repressive of freedom of the press, which it is. They're right. But this is not new. This is a symptom of the same thing, a weakened industry that is more than willing to throw journalists under the bus. And it's not just journalists, it's, it's people, people in all over corporate America that are willing to throw their employees under the bus because of opinions they have expressed in some circumstance or other if these opinions seem to be a liability to them. This is what we're talking about. Of course it is repressive to freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Of course this is terrible. Of course Emily Wilder shouldn't have been fired. But suddenly you notice it. <laughs> and it's not as if in all these stories condemning the, the firing of, of Emily, they, they, they show humility in admitting, you know, we were wrong. We were wrong. We were wrong to dismiss it as a problem. No. If anything, they try to make the incoherent argument that this is the real cancel culture. So we've, <laughs> that, that, that thing that those people have been talking about for, for months and years is, was just a total canard. Just look at how hypocritical the right has been about free speech. Which, again, many people on the right have been. But this, this, Emily's firing, say, say the, the outraged journalists on the left, this is the real thing. This is real cancel culture. No. Either we are facing an institutional crisis in terms of what people feel free to express publicly without incurring professional retaliation, or we are not. The truth is that, of course, we are. Everybody knows we are, especially if they happen to work in journalism. But people are just happy to stay blind to it as long as it's working in their favor. Oh, it's so infuriating. 
<laughs> I'm imagining the film that they're going to make in like f- five years time. And she's the protagonist of the film. It's like a very, I don't know. I could see it. It's, I could see it all coming together on the. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody is yeah, already. Pending the screenplay. Somebody's already optioning the right to her life story. Mm-hmm. Her Joan of Arc moment. Yep. How quickly you went from floating in the clouds to, to <laughs> riding around in the mud. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much that I repress. You should put on Neil again so you can go back floating in the clouds. Absolutely, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to add some some nice new age music in the background and listen you to him. You could turn this interview uh, podcast into like a meditation tape that you listen to before bed. You know, it would be perfect. This is how we monetize the podcast, Vanessa. With that, uh, <laughs> follow us on uncertain.substack.com. Share it around. It was so helpful when you folks share our episodes. It's nice to hear from you every once in a while, and it's nice to see our episodes getting shared. So keep on doing it. Share it with your friends and enemies. And if you're feeling extra kind, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. That's super helpful as well. And with that, to Neil. Neil Ferguson. I will always get it wrong. Is it Neil or Niall? You asked the crucial question about my name. The most crucial I'll ask today. And it is important because the world divides between um, the people who say Neil, which is right, <laughs> and the people who say Niall, which is wrong. And the Niall comes from the Irish mispronunciation of the Gaelic language Ooh. or Gaelic language. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Throwing down so it's got to be So it's got to be Neil. <laughs> it's got to be Neil. Otherwise, you know, I'll t- I, I've spent my whole life correcting people, but it got worse because of famous people called calling themselves Nile and uh, didn't used to have that problem. But then all these Irish people started becoming pop singers and the like. And uh, so Neil, please. So there's a whole and, idea. Uh, creep. Yeah. Adam is not Adam or anything like it, that. It, it, it actually it is. is. It actually is. <laughs> it's Adam. So Sh- th- you've had the same problem all, I, all my life. Yeah. So um, I, I asked because my wife is Ayan. And she has the, the two A's and the second syllable. So Adam. Yep, it is Adam. Oh, I, I never thought that the Adam actually will get people to... It's my, my mom decided on it, thinking that it will make uh, the, the Anglophone world pronounce it correctly. But I thought she's wrong. But, I mean, I guess it works for Ayan. It works, works for me. Adam it is. Neil, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I've... Um, been a fan since you converted me to the to the wonders of social clubs in uh, the Great Generation. That's a, it's an argument that I never thought I would encounter in a in a history book, and but it was uh, surprisingly persuasive. You almost made me uh, jo- seek one to join when, until I realized that I cannot afford that that little luxury of social connectivity. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you just one more question before we actually get into the the meat of it. You, you are the 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 Neil um, mentioned by Norman Stone in his intro to uh, Atlantic and its enemies, right? Because he has like a little aside there, mentions a, a star student, and I was just reading it this summer, and I was like, I, I assume that there aren't, I don't know any other Neil Ferguson historians. Yeah, Norman was my uh, doctoral advisor at Oxford many years ago, uh, one of two uh, who had a fierce rivalry, and so. I was um, I was frequently in in Norman's company from let's think the mid nineteen eighties until his untimely death uh, in twenty nineteen. Wow, it's a it's a nice connection. 
Well, he was a wonderful man, uh, in in many ways a, a Byronic figure, but brilliant, as brilliant as he was wayward. The the <laughs> the range of of knowledge was always just dazzling, and a conversation with Norman had this quality of uh, of 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 a, a run through a university library, but a run that became increasingly inebriated usually. <laughs> What's your, uh, do, do you feel any direct influences that still afflict you today? Oh yes, absolutely. Norman was a very big influence because Norman steered me away from all kinds of, of cul-de-sacs. When you're starting out as a, an historian, you've got to decide what to write your first book about, which is essentially your dissertation. And that that choice of topics, hugely consequential. And Norman was great at shooting down dud ideas. Uh, for example, I, I had at one point the notion of writing my dissertation about satirical literature in fin de siècle Vienna, which would have involved reading the entire run of Karl Krauss's magazine Die Fackel. And Norman said in his inimitable way, you would be able to translate the jokes. <laughs> and uh, that was true. And Norman's other advice was, you should therefore do something involving number crunching. Number crunching was Norman's code for economic history. Uh, so I, um, I, I took his advice and I, I thought, I'll crunch the biggest possible numbers I'll write about the German hyperinflation. And that, that, was, uh, that was a Norman, a very important Norman steer. But Norman was influential in a whole range of ways because he was one of a small number of conservative or at least um, radically anti-left academics who, who encouraged the Thatcherite students in uh, those heady days in the 1980s. He was right on the Cold War and, and pro-Thatcher. And so he was, he was an influence, not only in scholarly terms, but also an influence in, in my kind of political development in, back in the 1980s. And I, I miss him because there aren't, there aren't people like that really anymore. We don't make them like that. And he was tremendously erudite in a way that was just always a, a joy to, to, be part of. You couldn't come away from a night with Norman without a whole range of reading suggestions. And, uh, and, and that's, that's part of what I miss, those bibulous nights, which were bibulous and bibliographical in equal measure. Um, and without relitigating the the Thatcherite debate, I really would, listen, uh, would recommend to any listener who has been slightly triggered by this to to read at the very least the Atlantic and its enemies and then decide to what extent they find his position persuasive. So he veered you towards economic history because that's actually the first thing I wanted to to properly ask you. And and also can you explain it to the uh, to us laymen? Right. What what why what how is an economic historian different from a historian? Norman's scholarly contribution included a remarkable uh, book on the First World War. The Eastern Front, uh, which is an absolutely magisterial work that still has uh, not been surpassed, I think. Uh, and what's 
good about it is this sure way in which he weaves together the military aspects and the the underlying economic problem of uh, Russia's economy in the uh, in the First World War. I think I'm the kind of economic historian who who tries to do that. In other words, I am not exclusively writing about growth or uh, financial markets. For me, the interesting thing, as for Norman, is the connection between the economic history and history more broadly, including political and geopolitical history. But let me um, let me try to clarify the the way these silos work. History got sliced up back, I suppose, in the course of the 20th century into a bunch of, of subdisciplines, one of which was economic history. And the key topic that really made that that become institutionally distinct was the Industrial Revolution and what had caused it. When I was an undergraduate, there was a well-established Oxford uh, further subject in, in the Industrial Revolution, the British Industrial Revolution. And that was my introduction to economic history as a, a distinct subdiscipline. In the 1980s, there was a kind of phase of increasingly quantitative work, which was often done by economists who strayed into history. And so that this became much more mathy than it had been before. That appealed to me because, and here you have a little bit of a, a footnote, as a Scot like Norman Stone, I was just better trained at maths than my English counterparts reading history. So there was a sense that I could just do this a bit better than them. And as an undergraduate, I would gravitate towards the options that allowed that. There was a paper that everybody did called Political Thought, but there was one that hardly anybody did called Economic Thought, and that meant reading Adam Smith uh, and, and Keynes, and I, I went for that. So I was always interested in, in ways in which economics could inform history in, in all periods, even as an undergraduate. And it wasn't too difficult for Norman to persuade me to do an economic history subject, not least because the German hyperinflation is just one of those seminal moments in history. There was a kind of reasonable argument to be made that this was where it all went wrong for Germany. This was the beginning of the path that led to to Hitler. So I I wanted to work on that. Sorry, just you can see the nexus there between between the event the war that came before and the changing economic principles and stories and the realignment of nations all told through that moment in the economy. Exactly. I mean in the end most economics textbooks have at least a box about the German hyperinflation because it's the defining example of hyperinflation when a very advanced economy Uh, completely disintegrates in, in monetary terms. I wanted to work on that uh, once I realized that that was the direction to go, and it seemed like one of the big economic history topics. But what appealed to me about it was that it connected not just to more economics, but it connected into all that went wrong in the Weimar Republic. And that meant not just the political failure of German democracy, but also the wider crisis of, of German culture that made national socialism viable as a highly toxic but contagious political ideology. So there was there was always in my mind a way of connecting 
the economic history I was doing to, to history more broadly. And that kept happening in my work. I was, for ex example, just to kind of throw out another, I was fascinated by the evolution of the bond market as an institution and wanted to try to make it more of an actor in history. Uh, you may remember Jim Carvel's, James Carvel's famous joke about reincarnation back uh, during the Clinton administration, that if there was reincarnation, he didn't want to come back as the Pope or the Queen of England, but as the bond market, because that really was what ruled. And I was working after my first project on the history of the Rothschild banks or family. And there was this extraordinary story there about how the bond market evolved and how governments in the course of the 19th century became increasingly reliant on the ability to borrow money by selling bonds. And the Rothschilds had really been key market makers in that in that area. What interested me there was, again, the connection between the complex business of how financial markets work when you're selling a government bond to the political realm. Because clearly, if you're the principal market maker for government bonds, you are politically powerful, and the Rothschilds certainly were. The book, the book was two-volume history of, of that that story. So I'm I'm somebody who's interested, as you rightly said, Adam, in the nexus between economics and everything else. And I think any historian of the modern period has to have at least some understanding of macroeconomics and financial markets. Otherwise, you're you're really missing a lot of what's driving change. The two examples that you gave us, the uh, the the Rothschilds and the um, uh, the hyperinflation, the German hyperinflation, the collapse of the Weimar Republic, they or the <laughs> the beginning of the collapse of the Weimar Republic, both touch on themes that are developed and further explored in in your new book, Doom, which we're going to talk about in a minute. The hyperinflation speaks to societal implosion, and the Rothschilds speaks to questions about network because the Rothschild success was the story of how people through various types of connections including kin relations were able to secure a network that was reliable enough to allow for the continental wide accumulation and transfer of wealth so those two ideas come into play in an interesting way in your book and, and hopefully we'll get to that very soon but first just to introduce your book Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. It seems to be a very pandemic-inspired book, but has so much, so much more heft than merely the current moment. So to get into it, what's so unique and interesting in your book, to my understanding, is that it works on two levels. Like first, you have you kind of examine the history of disasters, of, of, of calamities natural and societal, and ask what were the causes and from the individual to the systemic level and what were the cultural, social, historical, economic impacts. But then you also ask to what were the errors that we as, as either historians or as people trying to look back and make sense of the future have made in misreading or misinterpreting or misrepresenting the causes and impacts of those disasters. So I'd like to start looking into those two levels, the history of disasters and the historiography of disasters. But first, just to make sure, do you disagree with my um, introduction in some way? I think that's right. The, the idea of the book predated the pandemic, and it was in my mind to write something about disasters, as well as about visions of disaster. There's no general history of disaster 
that I've come across that brings together the man-made uh, disasters and the natural disasters and the really huge disasters that kill millions or even tens of millions and the small but memorable disasters that kill people in, in dozens or hundreds or thousands from the Titanic to the Space Shuttle Challenger. So I had in mind a book that tried to look for patterns in the history of disaster that would allow us perhaps to grope towards a, a general theory of disaster. But I was also interested in how we think about disaster. So you're right that it's a book about both disaster objectively and disaster as perceived. The title Doom is somewhat ironical. We as a species are very obsessed with the end of the world. Uh, we've predicted an unknown number uh, of ends of the world, and so far none has happened. But we are fascinated by, by doom, by the apocalypse. It's there in the great religions. Uh, it's there in science fiction. And we are drawn towards the notion of the end time, of some kind of final reckoning. It's there in the great secular ideologies too. Marxism has its own apocalypse, the end of, of capitalism. So this is something that, that fascinated me. We love our eschatologies. I was yeah, absolutely eschatologically motivated to write this book, being aware, having been aware for some time that it's a distinctive feature of both religions and secular ideologies that they tend to exaggerate the probability of the end of the world and want at some level to bring it forward. And then at the same time, when actual disaster strikes, which is never quite the end of the world, but something nasty, we don't handle it very well or we rarely handle it well. So those, those are really absolutely two distinct features of the book. And I think the, the book could have been written without... COVID-19 happening. But when the Great Plague began in January 2020, it seemed like a rather urgently needed book. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll write it. I'll put something in the later chapters about what's happening in, in 2020, well aware that it would be overtaken by events. Because I think it's, it's, it's urgently needed that we think differently about disaster, or we're just going to keep making the kind of mistakes that many countries made last year. So that's that's the point of writing the book now, mm -hmm. rather than sort of doing the usual professor of history thing and waiting 10 years until the final death certificate with COVID on it. I mean, you could do that. No doubt there will be people who do write long after the event but I don't feel like that's the right way at this point. I'm so sure that we're thinking about disaster the wrong way that I wanted to get the book written even before the pandemic was over. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think you do in, in the book is that you, you discuss how there's different scopes of calamities, which I think is kind of a clarifying way of, of, of entering into this conversation. So, you know, because oftentimes every single disaster that we confront, it, it feels like the end of the world, but hasn't been yet. So would you mind explaining the different categories of calamities that you outline in, in the book? Well, there's quite a, a wide range of, of disasters. Uh, you could uh, obviously talk about pandemics. Those have been the biggest disasters. I don't think there are many disasters in recorded history to match the Black Death, which could have killed around a third of all humans living at that time. We can't really be sure, but certainly a lot more people than uh, 
COVID will have killed relative to the world population. But then there are others that, that don't get quite as much attention because we haven't had really big ones for a while. There hasn't been a really big volcanic eruption for over 200 years. The last one was Tambora in 1815, big enough actually to alter the, the climate. Uh, uh, and, and I'm interested in those geological disasters too. Then there are uh, the, the ones that don't quite have so much reach that are more localized. Uh, earthquakes, uh, for example, massive fires, uh, 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 floods and, and droughts. And you're thinking, well, this is a sort of biblical list of, of natural calamities. But Amartya Sen made the point many years ago that, that famine is not, in fact, a natural disaster and that what really determines uh, mass starvation in uh, the case of, a, of famine is politics. And uh, I, I had the, the great kind of epiphany that that couldn't only be true of famines, or at least it ought not to be. Uh, why, not, why not apply that insight to, to all the different forms of disaster? So the theme of the book, The Politics of Catastrophe, is that all disasters are at some level political, but some clearly more than others. A war is made by, decided by, started by people and fought by people against people, mostly men. And, and that feels like a different kind of disaster from a pandemic. The argument of the book is that they're not that different, actually, when, you, when you're in the midst of one, and that the outbreak of World War I was quite a lot like the beginning of, uh, of the COVID pandemic. So I very deliberately mixed together the uh, oranges and lemons or apples and pears or whatever you call it, all the different types of disaster, and then add in some smaller scale disasters that have nevertheless been very resonant, like the sinking of the Titanic, uh, showing that, firstly, disasters are not normally distributed. They do not follow a bell curve distribution like human height or automobile accidents. There are a few mega disasters that kill staggeringly large numbers of people, world wars, black death, that kind of thing. Uh, then there are some medium-sized disasters, which I think COVID will, will be, comparable with the 1957-58 influenza or somewhat smaller than 1918-19. And then there are just lots and lots of small disasters. Uh, and, and this follows uh, L.F. Richardson's dealing uh, with war in this way. I mean, Richardson, back in the mid-20th century, looked at the statistics of, of deadly quarrels, as he called them. And he, he tried to kind of relate murders, homicides to, to world wars and show that they followed this extraordinary distribution that, that was very, well... I'm not going to say counterintuitive, but it's not something we find easy to process. Uh, the distribution of conflicts in history looks random. There's no obvious pattern to it. And you can't make the argument that the world was getting steadily more peaceful when suddenly World War I and World War II happened. That, that doesn't work. So there's randomly distributed disaster. And then there's the power law distributed disasters uh, in which there's actually a kind of logarithmic straight line that you can draw. Uh, again, with that distribution, lots of tiny ones, a few medium-sized ones, and then a tiny number of vast ones. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but the point I'm trying to make is that that's what disaster looks like when you kind of graph it. And we as a species aren't very good at thinking about that because it maybe is just more intelligible to us to think of, of history as being a bit more like life uh, for us as individuals. Obviously, we all as individuals face the disaster of death, uh, but we approach it mostly through this rather predictable life cycle. We're young, uh, then we have a sort of a peak of our lives, 
you're both at that, and then we wane like me and finally fall apart and die. That's what most people nowadays go through. Uh, and, and that's how we want to think about history. So we love history to be cyclical in the way that life is. And part of what I do in the book is say, sorry, it's not. It can't be because these disasters keep happening and they're not remotely cyclical in their incidents. They're totally unpredictable. You can't, I can't tell you the probability of the next huge earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. I cannot tell you the probability of the next world war. I just can tell you that they could happen. And when they happen, all bets will be off, uh, locally in the case of the earthquake and globally in the case of the war. So you see, Vanessa, this is the problem with, with having guests that are too radio ready. It, they just like, they just charge through all the topics and... Wait, wait, wait. But no, but I, have a, a no, I, I have 17 follow-up questions. <laughs> but like, the, it, it seems almost... I mean, it's, it's, it does feel like it should be in inherently logical going from the, your earlier statement that all, all disasters, whether they be nat uh, of natural disaster, are actually, in effect, man-made disasters because it is the way that we confront these natural disasters that is going to have more impa impact on the actual outcomes, right? And so you would expect that there would be some sort of cyclical nature to disaster because it's so inherently human. And, and uh, so I'm just curious, to, I mean... How how are you disentangling this then? If 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 they if it's just random, um, then what is the relationship between how we the humanity of them? I yeah, and this is the intuition that that you confront in the book as well about cryodynamics, right? That this is part of the the idea that informs the attempts to at least extrapolate from the past on 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 the future to some extent. So yeah, why does it why does it fail? Why 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 is this intuition wrong? Clearly, some things in uh, the realm of history are are cyclical. The, the seasons. That's why a number of, of attempts have been made. Oswald Spengler did it to kind of have a, a seasonal version of history in which we go through four seasons, whether as civilizations or some other entity. There's a generational version of this, the fourth turning that you may have come across. And, and as I said, I mean, individual life has some distinctly cyclical quality to it. Demographics and economics too will give you a certain amount of uh, of cyclical behaviour. There's there's clearly some discernible trends in demographics. Malthus was groping towards that in his essay on the principle of population. And from Kondratiev to contemporary business cycle theories, we're looking for patterns in in economic data. That's all going on, and that makes it tempting to try to arrive at some grand design, some overarching. Uh, theory of history, which kind of brings it all together and gives it some predictable and even predictive structure. It's just that while all that's going on, there are these randomly distributed shocks that are so huge that they must constantly be interrupting the cycles that you're trying to find. Uh, so Ray Dalio has this book that is sort of mostly published now, but has com come out in bits and pieces online, which tries to identify a, a cyclical theory of, of debt, really. And debt's something I've worked a lot on over the years. And I'm always glad to see hedge fund managers doing some scholarly work in the later part of their careers. But you just have to torture the data hmm. uh, in ways that must violate some some uh, law of what you can do to statistics to arrive at these beautiful wave-like charts that, uh, that 
that Dalio, following many others, comes up with. I think, and this is something I've been arguing for a long time since I did a book called Virtual History back in the 90s, that the horrible reality about the historical process is that there's just a lot of contingency and non-linearity. And if you're looking for cyclical patterns from which you can infer the future, it's ultimately a doomed enterprise because you'll never get it. There'll always be some random shock so much larger than your your cyclical forces that it'll just disrupt whatever trends you think you discern. And the respectable version of cyclical history is Peter Turchin's work. I mean, Turchin's a, right. an impressive scholar whose, whose work I, I give some space to because I think it needs to be better known. It's a really serious attempt to find some patterns in the history of civilization from early history through into the, the early modern period. And I, I admire the work. And it also impresses me that Turchin turned his mind to modern American history and came up with an argument about cycles of violence through the whole of, of US history. Uh, and, and it seemed even to predict 2020 to the point that people started to write about Turchin in the, in the press. But the, the thing about 2020 is that it, it became 2020 because of the random occurrence of a mutant uh, coronavirus. And, and you can't really find any cyclical pattern to the incidence of novel pathogens. There just isn't any. Another last point I'll make, and then I'll shut up. The big disasters don't happen often enough for us to get a sense of their, hmm. their likelihood. So they don't offer us when, enough of a sample pool. The sample size of Great Depressions is actually pretty small. It's at most three, if you count the late 19th century as a Great Depression and, and the 2008 crisis. Or maybe it's just one, 1929 to 32. But the same goes for the really big geological events. The same goes for the big pandemics. They don't happen often enough for us, particularly those of us whose history of the world is a sort of combination of our lived experience, our personal experience and what we studied at school to have a good feel for them. And that's why we kind of know disaster is out there and we watch disaster movies. But when an actual disaster strikes, we're, we're kind of flailing. The way that Wall Street people were flailing in 2008, because very few of them had studied the Great Depression. And when Lehman blew up, they, they were mostly completely and utterly flying blind. And this was true of policymakers too. Something similar, I think, happened at the beginning of 2020 when even public health officials who whose job it was to think about pandemics were, were thrown off uh, by the way that this thing spread the speed with which it spread and the peculiar way in which it disrupted society. I, you, you said something that was, was almost implying a challenge to your own argument. So, you, If I understand correctly, your position to um, any attempt to, to create a cyclical model is similar to Thomas Sowell's rejection of, of, of higher expertise because you just don't have enough you, there are too many variables and you can never actually like model all the available data. There's just too much information and, and you will never be able to really create a coherent um, a model. Your model of the world is only as good as recent history allows it to be, basically. And then when you have a, a epic-changing event like a pandemic, then you're completely flummoxed. But you just said that one of the problems for Wall Street uh, folks in the uh, flailing in the, in the 2008s was that they didn't study the Great Depression, which m implies that some familiarity with the history would have informed their, their ability to cope. This is not a contradiction. The historical process is too complex to model 
But if you know some history, then you can at least get a feel for what these disasters mm. are like, particularly in the first inning. It's not that you can predict them. The key is to be very quick when they begin. And so what history allows you to do, as the great Oxford philosopher of history, R.G. Collingwood said, is to see the tigers in the grass. Collingwood said that when you, you study history, you become a little bit like a, an expert a woodsman. You're kind of very good at spotting the tigers in the grass that the travelers you're escorting won't see. And that, I think, is right. The application of history cannot be a model-building exercise, but rather a way of thinking about the present that is that is nuanced by and educated by the past. Not that you can predict the next pandemic, but you know when one is beginning before the non-historian. And it's the same with financial crises. I could just tell from late 2006 that we were heading into the territory of a financial crisis. I couldn't have told you the week that Lehman would blow up, but I remember writing a bunch of columns back then about what was going on in real estate in the US and why the banks were excessively uh, leveraged, all that stuff. It's, it's not that you're giving yourself predictive power in the way that those who build models are seeking to give at least a range of scenarios. It's more that you're trying to attune yourself to historical patterns so that you're alert to the, the, the onset of disaster. Because I think, just to take the example of, of last year, that those who relied on, on models and who, who were trying to use models didn't do as well uh, as those people who, in countries like Taiwan and South Korea, were just generally paranoid and, and just ready for something bad to come out of China as a default position. The speed with which the, the South Koreans and the Taiwanese reacted is in marked contrast to the slowness of our response, it, it, except that on paper, the US was very well prepared for a pandemic. It, it ranked at the top of a 2019 survey of, of, of public health preparedness. So I'm trying to tease out of, of this case and many other cases, the seeming paradox that you can in fact be, you can be very well prepared for the wrong disaster and hmm. that can encumber your response. Whereas general paranoia and readiness, alertness is the state of mind to cultivate. In the end, as doom shows, there are just so many different forms that disaster can take that you, you're, you're in danger if you focus too closely on one scenario that you find really interesting. And that's what we do at the moment. We, we focus on climate change, which we have a model for, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change model. And we are spending a great deal of time discussing that scenario, which I don't say we should disregard. On the contrary, it's one of the disaster forms we should worry about, but it's only one. And if we spend all of our time, as was happening at Davos at the World Economic Forum back in January 2020, talking about that one disaster, we could be completely myopic about the other disasters, including the one that was already underway in January 2020. Your, the way you described your intuition during the, uh, ahead of the financial crisis, 
it still seems, sounds like there is some, um, if not prediction, but there is some ability to forecast, like, like a meteorologist that can see wind patterns moving in a certain direction. And you can say that this might build into a hurricane in the next X amount of time. A, is that, is that accurate? And B, if true, then that brings out the book warnings, which you do also mention in, your, in, your, uh, in Doom. The question of like, how do you sift through all the doomsayers to determine who's a legitimate Cassandra and who's a false prophet? Well, weather's a good example, actually, because we've got a lot better at weather forecasting in the recent past. And that's partly because of the recognition of meteorologists that the weather is a complex system. And uh, you, you're not going to be able to predict the weather very far out with any accuracy, but you can at least pick up the beginnings of the, the hurricane. I, I give the example of Edward Lorenz's work on, uh, on chaos because that does seem to me to be what history is like. It's, it's like the weather. Uh, it's, it's a complex system. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to model, maybe impossible to model, uh, because of all the non-linearities and uh, the periodic uh, outlier events when the system can go critical. So this this is the right way to think about history. It's much more like the weather than it is like the Fed's model of the economy. And if that's the case, then uh, we won't be able to say with any great uh, confidence uh, what's going to happen 10 years from now. Uh, but we might actually pick up uh, the, the next uh, disaster a week from now. And those disasters are, are going to often not happen, which is why you can't fill mm. your government with Cassandras because there are just too many people predicting disaster. This is the flaw in, in the uh, Richard Clark R.P. Eddy book, which, which looks interestingly at a whole range of disaster, but, but concludes that in each case, a Cassandra was ignored if only the Cassandra had been, had been heard. Uh, and therefore, we need to have Cassandras in every, in every government Agency. We need to that, have a model to understand that, to sift through which Cassandras are the real thing, and and even then, it's it's going to be it's going to be pretty hit and miss. I think it's better to think more broadly about this weather-like characteristic of history, and to see that your your task as a whether you're running a a government agency or corporation, your, your task is not actually elaborate preparedness for a finite number of scenarios. Your, your task is actually rapid response. Hmm. It's, it's, let me bring you back to the financial crisis for a moment. I remember having a conversation with Lloyd Blankfein, who was the chief executive at Goldman Sachs during the crisis, about it. And, and he said, the thing was, we were no better than the other investment banks, but we were quicker. We were quicker to react when it began to be clear what was coming. And I've thought the same about the Taiwanese response, which was that the Taiwanese didn't have better pandemic preparedness plans, but they were very quick to realize that something very bad was happening uh, on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. And that speed of response, that, that nimbleness is what I think... Uh, many Western governments have, have lost. And I say that because I think we used to have it. I think we used to be quicker in, in responding to, to crisis than, than we now are. Uh, this is a 
part of the book that takes us to the relatively recent past, to the 1950s. My sense is that the federal government of the 1950s, which was, of course, in large measure staffed by people who'd fought World War II, was, was a quicker, nimbler operation than the federal government of, of 2020, and not only in the domain of, of public health. So that's another of the broader arguments of the book, that you know, we don't need to be bad, this bad, at managing a disaster, but we've really got quite bad at it. And if you think about the last, let's say, 20 years, from 9-11 through Katrina, through the financial crisis uh, to 2020, it's not exactly a, a, a brilliantly impressive list of, of managed disasters. So that's, a, that's an important point, uh, which I, I, I'm fascinated by, because I sense that there is just something, there is something different about the way 1957 plays out in the US compared with 2020. I got very, very excited by the story of 1957. Drill into this a bit. And what's your diagnosis for this political sclerosis that slowed down the the ability of the rest of the West to respond? In your view, well, at some level, this is unoriginal because Francis Fukuyama has made a, a similar argument, the boredom argument. I've seen this argument in a bunch of different places. Uh, Mark Andreessen makes it. Uh, the kludgeocracy uh, term, which is ugly, but somehow covers it. A lot of us have come to the, the same conclusion that that there is sclerosis, to use your term. And th- this goes back to work that Mansur Olson did many years ago, the argument being that over time, uh, a good setup, a, a good constitution, a good department will get worse uh, because of certain pathologies of of bureaucracy. I wrote about this problem in a book called The Great Degeneration uh, 10 years ago, and I think it's it's proved to be right that the administrative state that evolved in the United States, really from the 1970s, when more and more things began to be delegated to government agencies by Congress, because it was easier than dealing with the problems through the legislature, we, we've developed a very uh, unwieldy bureaucracy, which has certain I think deformations of procedure. And I think one way of summing those up is the legalistic mindset Mm. in which you regard all potential scenarios as kind of equal, all potential adverse scenarios as equal and capable of being regulated for ex ante. So this produces very copious uh, uh, regulations, pages and pages for every contingency the problem is that this is pseudo preparation. So your ass is covered, but it doesn't actually work. Is that is that is the problem a legalistic mindset, or is the problem I don't want to call it progressive because it is a, a loaded term, but but basically the idea that we can patch ex ante for for problems. Is it the cultural trap that the West fell into, thinking that the state has the power and should have the power to approach long-lasting stability. It's almost the, the illusion of historicism, as if the, the state has constantly progressed in one direction towards being able to eliminate all scarcity and fix all wants and prevent all disasters. So to me, this, as much as or even more than the pervasive legalistic mindset, is the reason we've started viewing disasters as something that our government should be able to prevent entirely rather than be prepared for. Clearly, there's a significant difference between 
let's say, the way the US government works and European governments. I think the US law school uh, mentality is, is a little different from, let's say, the, the German uh, uh, bureaucratic mindset or the way that the French elite thinks about problems if they've been educated uh, as inarch. It's different. Mm. But it seems like we arrive at somewhat similar points. And, and the, they're not, I think, necessarily progressive in your sense of the term and the American sense of the term which a European might call social democratic. Exactly. And this is what I would call historicism, which we, uh, the idea that we, have, we are moving towards a more you know, enlightened, conscious state of being, which also means that our government is more capable and more competent. Yes. And it should be said that the media play a part here because whenever anything bad happens, there is a style of, of writing about it which says... Something should have been yeah. done. This this could all have been avoided if uh, Trump hadn't been an imbecile. That that kind of writing. So we and this over time has has produced a curious dynamic where uh, the the public is conditioned to think that that disasters should be averted, and if they're not averted, then somebody has to somebody's head has to roll. The bureaucracy is uh, obviously quite eager not to have its head roll, and and the politicians feel the same way, and so you end up with something that was very brilliantly satirized in the in the british sitcom yes minister uh something must be done this is something let's do it and so i think you've you've got a pathology where uh there's a kind of feedback loop between the public the media is the channel and and the response in the bureaucracy and with the elected officials is we need to cover our asses with a 36-page pandemic preparedness plan, and it needs to cover all bases uh, so that if this thing happens, then we can show that we had a plan. There's a moment for me, a key moment in the recent past, when the Undersecretary for Preparedness, Robert Cadlett, gives a lecture in Texas just after the administration's produced yet another pandemic plan. The, these pandemic plans would fill an office. And he says, you know, if we don't actually have a, a, an effective insurance policy against pandemic, we'll be SOL if one happens. And I didn't know what SOL stood for. So <laughs> shout out to Philip Zellico, who drew my attention to this lecture. And I listened to the whole thing. And there, I, there is the guy who's in charge of pandemic preparedness admitting that the preparedness is going to be useless. That's an interesting moment for me. I'll, I'll give you another example of, of this from Richard Feynman's book about the space shuttle Challenger blowing up, where, you know, initially the press wanted to blame, blame Reagan for pressing for an expedited launch because he wanted to put it in the State of the Union. That story fell apart. What really happened, as Feynman shows, was that the NASA engineers knew there was a one in a hundred chance that the thing would blow up because of of fuel leaks, but the NASA bureaucrats turned that into one in a hundred thousand because they really didn't want to admit how big the risk was to the people writing the checks for the space shuttle program. And I, I love the moment in Feynman's account where one of the engineers says, well, I, I kept trying to tell them it was one in a hundred, but I could never get a meeting with Mr. Kingsbury. And Mr. Kingsbury is this to me, Zelig-like figure who is everywhere in history, the guy in middle management who's really the point of failure. I think there are lots and lots of, of 
moments in history where the point of failure is kind of there, not at the top. And I think we've we've got to confront this pathology of our way of dealing with risk because it's there in every domain. There were lots and lots of regulations about bank capital adequacy in 2007. In fact, the Basel Accords had got longer over time and more detailed and more prescriptive. There were lots of regulators whose job it was to make sure that we didn't have another big financial crisis, and yet none of it worked in practice. So I think we've got this curious and complex pathology, which I started to write about in The Great Degeneration, which is there in doom, where there's some strange and ultimately dysfunctional relationship between public expectations, uh, media coverage, bureaucratic response, and how elected official f- officials think, and it leads us to pseudo-preparedness. Uh, and that pseudo-preparedness seems to me to be there in every major disaster that there has been in the last 20 years. And it's not there in the 1950s. Because in the 1950s, they did not have a plan for the North Korean invasion of South Korea because they didn't think it would happen. But when it happened, with extremely impressive speed, they put together a response and ultimately were able to reverse the invasion of, of, of South Korea. When the 1957 Asian flu struck, they did not really have a plan for dealing with that uh, beyond the experience that they'd had in 1918-19, but they were very quick to get a vaccine and recognize the ways in which they could and could not manage this this kind of disaster. So I'm, I'm going to make the argument in the book, I do make the argument in the book that we got worse at this and we don't need to be worse at it because countries like Taiwan and South Korea have, perhaps because of their situation next to very hostile neighbors, have got a nimbleness, are using technology. I mean, that's a point that isn't discussed nearly often enough. We totally failed to use technology to deal with this problem. Totally. It's not like we don't have it. We just didn't use it. I wanted to ask you, I mean, how does how do you feel like this connects to your to our earlier the part of the conversation when we're talking about a lack of historical thinking? Because I'm 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 thinking about, you know, when when the pandemic hit, I and I think a lot of people were very drawn to history, right? Like I was reading a lot about 1918. I wanted to feel some sort of connection to some other generations that had had come uh, through a similar kind of situation and how they dealt with it. But from what I, from what you were talking about earlier, I think you were suggesting that in reality, what we need is a kind of more ingrained historical thinking that accompanies us, so that we see those tigers in the grass, right? So that, but we're prepared when when we see those like warning signs before something like a pandemic is is coming and so uh, that to me suggests that we're we kind of there's a we're, our our capacity for historical thinking has kind of atrophied which also seems like it might be related to like some sort of inverse relationship with this like legalistic bureaucratic mindset as opposed to a historical way of perceiving the world and i was wondering if you would if if that rings true to you in some way i think it's it's problematic that we have a rather limited number of historical analogies at our disposal in contemporary discourse. You have more than one? Well, it's always the 1930s. It's always the 1930s. And <laughs> it's certainly always the 1930s politically. Um, and, if, and, and, and then if you can't find it in the 1930s, you look for the nearest available disaster. Uh, and 1918-19 was kind of close. But it's always the mid-20th century, isn't it? Because that's the, the history that somehow we find rhetorically powerful. And and that has been true for a long time. I mean, the 1930s were 
a, a baleful presence in decision making in the 1950s and the 1960s, and it carries on. Also, and that this criticism I, comes from a person who started his career if, on, on writing about the 1920s, 19, the 1930s. It is a so, very appealing period, very tempting. It's tempting because we are, are sufficiently familiar with the bad guys and the good guys to be able to make a speech, uh, <laughs> or at least a paragraph of a speech, work. But the truth is that our time is nothing like the mid-20th century. It is so different that if you went back in a time machine to the 1930s, you'd just be reeling at the sheer difference. And I tried to argue in my last book, The Square and the Tower, that we just need to forget about the freaking mid-20th century and look at times that are more like our own technologically. I think the period after the printing press hits Europe from the 16th, 17th century towards the end of the 18th century, that's a lot more like our time uh, because the printing press has this disruptive effect in the way that the internet has had a hugely disruptive effect on the public sphere. And that's a more helpful analogy to me than, uh, you know, Donald Trump is Hitler, which is the sort of least interesting and, and least helpful analogy of, of recent times. Uh, I mean, this, this I think is important because when you, you ask how should we use history, I'd say how should we apply history, it's very, very important to, to have a, a broad range of analogies available and not just those mid-20th century cliches. It's also important that we should, we should avoid teaching history as a kind of morality tale, which is increasingly how it's done in universities and schools, that, that slavery is wicked and civil rights is good, and that is history. Because ultimately, to go back through the past, ticking uh, the dead off for being racists is a totally, I think, unproductive activity. In fact, it's the opposite of what I was taught to do, because all we're doing is is judging the past in our own, with our own contemporary values, rather than trying to understand theirs better. So I do think that in order to get back to Collingwood's approach to history, which he sets out brilliantly in his, his autobiography, published just on the eve of World War II, we need to teach history in a different way. We need to teach more broadly. I think not only students in, in universities, but school kids should get a sense of the broad sweep of world history. And in that broad sweep, we should constantly be encouraging them to see the world as people in the past saw it and not to condescend to those people by saying, you really were a shocking racist. And if we think more in those terms, allowing people to see human history with its great sweep of pandemics and revolutions, religious upheavals, I think we get better pattern recognition. And it's the lack of pattern recognition that I think has come to to bedevil decision makers. Uh, as I said, I think I think the American legal education creates a completely dreadful mentality for for policymaking. This is a point Kissinger makes uh, in his early career, and I, I'm in the midst of writing a biography of Kissinger. So let me throw this in. Kissinger observes that if you're trying to make a strategy or a foreign policy, you need to connect everything together and have some sense of its interdependence. But if you're trained as a lawyer, you take everything on a case-by-case -case basis, and that that's actually a terrible way to, to make strategy. I think that's a, that's also a good insight. It made me think about, a, a, not, not to foul the conversation with, a, with Twitter, but a tweet that made the rounds this week, I think it was regarding the Israel-Palestine 
uh, conflagration, said something along the lines of, history is the story of colonial powers deracinating indigenous populations. Don't let anyone tell you that it's more complicated than that. And I remember thinking as I was reading this, this is, this is theology. This is just theology. Yeah, I saw that. It's, uh, it just made me so sad that uh, there was some, all the debate that I saw around this tweet was about whether or not this analogy applies accurately to the Israel-Palestine discussion, none of which was about, hey, that's a really bad way to think about history. Everybody seemed to, to tolerate the conclusion that this is all there is. This is it. There is <laughs> it's yeah. true complexity. The hell with it. Embrace <laughs> theology. Well, I, I saw that, that tweet or was it sufficiently widely read to become a meme and and for three seconds maybe two and a half i wanted to shoot back a contemptuous riposte but i'm old enough and wise enough now not not to do that because of course it's the reductio ad absurdum of of online discourse that you could distill all of human history into uh into your version of what's going on in in gaza no it, it's it's a depressing <laughs> depressing symptom of 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 where where historical thinking has has led us i mean you could put it somewhat differently and that is that that a, to a huge extent history is the history of empires and uh that would be a, a reasonable statement though it wouldn't be all of history but it would be a big part of history more certainly than the history of of nation states but at that point, of course, you realize that um, that many, many empires uh, engaged in, in settlement, uh, and not only empires run by white people, uh, but that many empires also were able to function without settling, and that actually quite a lot of empire is, is in fact, not to do with settlement. I mean, the British did not settle India. Uh, they ran it without uh, really that many people being there. From the British Isles, so I I regard these oversimplifications as as yes a disease of which they pretend to be the cure. Which takes me to to the the point that I, I wanted to get to earlier, which is your discussion about networks, because you you well you you wrote the um, the square in the tower and you're, you're into, and you which found a whole thesis about the power of networks and you've touched it in Doom as well. And I remember mentioning to you in an email about how um, here in the household would get into conversations about which book affected us more, The Square and the Tower. And for me, it was The Great Degeneration. And I will say as an aside that The, the Great Degeneration really has, it's one of those books that plucked me from where I was, I think, politically before in terms of not just, poli not exactly politically, but more in terms of what I valued in terms of analysis and reprioritize some of my own thinking. So I, I, I'm greatly indebted to that book. Thank you. But my question about networks, it, it's a beautiful point that you make that the extent to which events that we consider disasters are calamitous to humans is a factor of the density and connectivity of human networks. The size of the hub of people that settled next to a volcano and the number of branches that stem from this hub, like, like trade routes, are a greater determinant of the scope of the calamity than the size of the volcano. And that, that impact obviously is very clear when it comes to a pandemic that we've just faced and seen the extent of a very globalized world, but also to ideas. And, and to idea contagion, like, like what we were just discussing. 
And I'm wondering if you have any thought in terms of how to make networks more resilient to, to disasters, both intellectual and physical. It's a great question. I became obsessed with networks before I understood them. So a lot of my early work is, in fact, about networks. And we discussed earlier the network of Jewish financiers, which had the Rothschild family at its, uh, as one of its key hubs. I did a lot of work on imperial networks when I was studying the British Empire, but I didn't really understand how they worked. And it wasn't until I got down to business researching the square and the tower that I educated myself about network science and understood that you can't really talk about networks in history until you have some understanding of of network structure. You have to have read some Barabasi to understand what a scale-free network looks like, and you have to know the difference between an, a node and an edge. And it was great. I loved studying that stuff and, and educating myself. It put my earlier work in a, in a new light. I realized I could have done it much better. So when you look at the biggest disasters in history, they, they have in common contagion uh, because a, a, a localized earthquake, uh, unless it creates huge waves that go a long way, it's not a global event. But a pandemic can be and often has been a global event. And there are also different forms of contagion that can, that can propel destruction over great distances. And that's, that's an interesting point that I, I labored maybe in the square and the tower, that contagions of, of ideology of the mind can be enormously destructive. The, the Russian Revolution is interesting because the idea of Bolshevism goes viral in ways that for a time threaten a global upheaval. So when you ask the question, how can we make networks more resilient? I think it's, it's both resilience to uh, biological contagion and to ideological contagion that we're talking about. And the answer in each case can be put as simply as circuit breakers. Hmm. If you are confronted with a novel pathogen, which is certainly contagious and you don't really know how lethal it is, then the sooner you can circuit break, the sooner you can stop its spread from the initially affected area, the better. This was Larry Brilliant's point many years ago when he said the key in a new pandemic is early detection, early action. And I think we know that we were bad at this because we were really slow to do anything about long-haul travel, even after it was obvious that there was something very wrong in uh in Wuhan, nothing really was done to limit uh, long-haul flights until January the 23rd. And even after that, we've continued to be extraordinarily lax about travel uh, from areas affected with new variants. It's still, it's still the case. So I think the answer is, in some ways, an obvious one. It was one that, under, uh, that struck people in the Middle Ages who didn't understand at all what was going on with the Black Death. They did understand that disrupting communications was a good idea. So that, that's an old, tried-and-tested way of dealing with a biological contagion, and I think there's relevance here to the contagions of the mind. In The Square and the Tower, I concluded that we had a fundamental problem in the public sphere, that the internet, having been highly decentralized in its original design to become highly centralized with the rise of the network platforms, and the network platforms were incentivized by their business model, namely selling ads, to promote fake news and extreme views. And we know that Facebook, for example, had groups that were super spreaders for bad ideas like anti-vax ideas. 
They knew that. Uh, they were well aware of it. And they did very little about it. Uh, and that's been well covered by Kevin Roos and others uh, whose beat this is. So we have a puzzle, and that is that we've got a public sphere now dominated by entities that have the perfect catch-22 setup. They can be tech platforms when they promote harmful content, not publishers, but they're publishers when they do censorship. And uh, this is catch-22 for our time. And until we fix that, and that requires at the very least to rewrite Section 230 of the original Communications Decency Act and to create some kind of First Amendment in cyberspace, we are going to have a horrible problem because the tech platforms basically have no liability either way. I mean, you can't sue them. It's not worth trying. We're going down this blind alley called antitrust. It won't change the thing that's really wrong. So we've got a problem of, of super spreaders of, of harmful ideas who are in no way accountable. And we decided not to fix that problem, even although it was glaringly obvious after the 2016 election. And here we are. It's made it very hard to sell vaccination, especially to the people who most need it. And here we are in a situation where the the, the resistance to vaccines is most uh, most widespread amongst African-Americans and elderly conservatives in the South, the people who most need to get protected from, from COVID-19. So I, I'm slightly... I'm more animated than than normal on this issue because it's so frustrating to have been writing about this for years and, and nothing really significant has changed. And now we have a really obvious negative consequence beyond the realm of, of, of politics. I don't know. I, I think we can fix can, the biological contagions are actually easier <laughs> to deal with than the contagions of the mind. Um, you know, this was my nine-year-old son's joke, or I guess he was eight when he made this joke. He said that, that there are two plagues, Dad. There's COVID-19 and there's Woked-19. And Woked-19 is more dangerous because you can get it from the internet. <laughs> oh I mean, this, is, this was a brilliant joke. This is the best joke of 2020 in our household. And I give full credit to Thomas for making it. <laughs> my, but my, my, my pushback on 2.30, I, I have a visceral reaction when I hear the immediate solution for, for, for Facebook contagion being regulatory, and 230 is a regulatory solution, just not, not through the antitrust route, just a redefining of the terms of liability upon which the entire current standard of internet freedom has been founded. I don't think it's necessarily as catastrophic as some libertarian doomsayers suggest, but I'm also not convinced that this is necessarily going to lead to any of the results that we are hoping for. Put aside the idea that we are not even sure what an American internet is going to look like with an amended 230, I also really do not trust the people right now who would have to rewrite it, the people who will have to redefine the limits of online speech. I don't trust them to, to, to author any kind of code that will be first acceptable by more than 46% of the country, and second, I just don't trust them to create the sort of virtual public sphere that we want to see and that won't be some kind of restrictive government-run fairness doctrine. So I'm very discomforted, but, but feel free to allay my concerns. Well, as I said, it's only part of the solution. You, you, you can minimally tweak it to make it less broad in its scope. At the moment, it, 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 it does kind of give a license to 
the tech companies to engage in arbitrary political censorship according to their own whims. I think that's that's become clear. But I would say that the key is to follow through on the Supreme Court's observation that the internet is now the public square and, and take away this excuse that, oh, we're, we're just private companies and we don't have to think about the First Amendment. Joe Nye's observation to me once at Harvard, the professor at the Kennedy School, that, that Harvard acts as, as if, or it used to, as if um, the First Amendment applies to it. I think that that was an important insight for me, that you would want to act as if the First Amendment applied. Uh, but I think it's enormously tricky. And I, I'm i a free speech fundamentalist and, and libertarian too. The last thing we want is uh, to have some new and more powerful or existing but more powerful regulatory agency making these calls. My view is that we want this to be settled in the courts. And the problem is that at the moment, under the current legislation, these big tech companies are basically unsuable. And that's what needs to change. You need to increase their liability. Uh, but, you know, this, this, to come back to your original question, reveals the great difficulty of, of dealing with a networked world when the network has become scale-free in the way that it has with these uh, enormous concentrations uh, of influencers uh, and super spreaders on a relatively small number of, of platforms, we actually are better able to contain the spread of a novel pathogen than we are to contain the spread of an, uh, a dangerous meme. And nobody has a great answer to that that problem. My view is that at the very least, we need to recognize that we've created the, the conditions for our own version of the 30 years war, where what are in effect religions, because I think wokeism is a religion and, and QAnon, or it's a cult. Uh, these, these two uh, non-rational frameworks of thinking then ultimately escalate their conflict to the point of, of violence. You know, it's, it, it, it started in the, in the printed tracts of the Reformation, but ultimately produced the Thirty Years' War. I worry that, that we, we actually can end up generating our own war of religion. Uh, and that's, that's much harder to, to stop happening. I agree. It's not, it's not like there's a quick fix for this, but I don't think doing nothing is is at all the answer. I mean, that that's that's not a sustainable... We are not in a sustainable place right. at the moment uh, in in what we have. I wouldn't 100% agree. I just don't see 230. In, in the same way that back in 2016, when Democrats were pushing for the um, restraint of Facebook because, because clearly Facebook gave Trump the election at the time, that was the story. I, I felt that was a stupid solution to a real problem. And I think now... Conversations around two thir uh, Section 230, I feel like this is an abdication from the conservative side of some of the ideas that they held only five years ago or three years ago when it comes to the sanctification of First Amendment rights for corporations, which also imply the right of editorial process. Now, to mention it completely ignores what used to be a conservative insight that if you bring in government to handle content moderation, the results will be suboptimal. And if you want to stretch my intuition on this, I would definitely say that events like Amazon removing Parley from its servers, that certainly crosses a line that needs to be addressed. But Twitter and Facebook banning Trump, that's 
uh, I don't like it. It's to their shame that they still have Ayatollah Khamenei on after kicking Trump. But that's their moral cross to bear. At the, at the very least, I think we could all agree that the, the words or otherwise objectionable <laughs> should be deleted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody should agree on that because that's just absurdly broad. If you, can, if you say that uh, providers of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntary taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, maybe get rid of harassing too. But the otherwise objectionable thing just has created a, a, an open door for systematic political skewing, and it can't be a sane world in which the President of the United States, while still in office, can be entirely removed from most of the public square, obviously not all of it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a problem that we've decided once again to shelve, because for Democrats, it's worked in their favour this time, so everything is awesome. We know how that, that particular story ends historically. Right. I mean, ultimately, getting to, a, getting to a place in which we have a reasonable rules of the road for free speech was not easy. And if one thinks over the, the battles for press freedom in the Western world, uh, that was a slog. And it, it was kind of many a bitterly contested case that got us to a place of, of, of relative freedom of speech. I think we've, we've gone off in a much worse direction from the minute that we decided that tech platforms were not really publishers. That's... Uh, We'll have to disagree on this for now. I will not bore my, my audience with <laughs> who knows my views on this. I do think that the platforms, as they are right now, pose a serious problem in terms of the model for information spreading. And to sound like a cantankerous old dunce, I think it's rotting our brains. But the, the rot is not going to be fixed if we have a more equitable representation of conservative views on Twitter. I don't think it will just create a more a more noisome rot. No, I, I don't I don't think there's any way of, of of achieving that. I just want it to be easier to sue the tech companies. I just want them to have really massive, massive legal bills for for what they what they publish that's harmful and what they censor that they shouldn't and if you can if you can just make the lawyers uh chip away at their vast uh profits we'll be moving in the right direction without increasing the power of government the key thing is to reduce the power of the big tech companies which reached a an insane zenith in january and 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 we should all be much more concerned about what happened then than, than we I seem think to that's be. an interesting distinction that's worth just highlighting that your concern is more about reducing their power than than creating a, a government-based solution. I think this is clarifying to me. I still disagree, but I, th I find it a very helpful clarification. Do you have a few more minutes before for one more question? Absolutely. Okay, I, I wanted to ask a question, too. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> Two questions. I can keep you here all night. This is just this is just hearing your mellifluous <laughs> voice is just such a <laughs> such a joy. Oh, shocks. I wanted to ask you a question about uncertainty because mm. you know, name of our podcast, uncertain things. This is the 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 pit that we like to to run around in. Um, <laughs> so I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is that I mean I think we we would probably all agree that we are at a, a moment and age of of. of of a lot of uncertainty. Um, Actually, before you even ask the question, I'm going to read the quote from the book. 
Your, your opening line in the book is, never in our lifetimes, it seems, has there been, I love that it seems, just like hedging your, it seems, uh, never in our lifetimes, it seems, has there been greater uncertainty about the future and greater ignorance about the past, of the past. And uh, pretty much sums up the uh, credo for our podcast, which is, uh, right. which is, leads up to Vanessa's question. Right. Well, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is that, I mean, to what extent is it a, a good or bad thing to be a society in a time of, of uncertainty? Because I can imagine there are advantages and disadvantages to being in a certain time, as well as to being in an uncertain time. And so I kind of wanted to, to get your take on, you know, what are, what are there, are there, we can kind of all gather the negatives, but surely there might be some positives as well of being an uncertain society in an uncertain moment. To start that was just explaining how you would define uncertain times and certain times, <laughs> or times of certainty. Well, the it seems is the clue, <laughs> because, in fact, we, we, we've got much more certainty than most people in history, uh, vastly more, in the sense that we made enormous advances in, in our scientific understanding of most of the, the threats that we face. So that was the it seems. But I think there is this perception, oh, what terrible uncertainty we live under. And, uh, and I think that's born of ignorance of history, actually, because if we understood the past properly, we'd see that most people in, in most of history were engaged in subsistence agriculture and flying completely blind. Uh, I think we need to embrace the uncertainty. And later on in the book, I say, look, the problem is that disasters do not belong in the realm of, of risk, but in the realm of uncertainty, as Frank Knight and Keynes defined it, th these are things to which we cannot ex-ante attach probabilities. And the, the problem that our age has is it craves certainty in the realm of uncertainty. And this then leads to the dangerous ideologies, the terrible simplifiers that exist on both the left and the right. Because uncertainty is just not nice to live with. So wouldn't it be better to have a, a, an ideology that that took out the uncertainty and give us a great certainty that in fact everything is white supremacy right. or everything is a conspiracy to prevent Trump's re-election. So I, I'm a passionate believer that we need to live with uncertainty and understand that it's a much larger part of our lives than we're comfortable with. That the domain of uncertainty is probably greater than the domain of calculable risk. We can't, therefore, have insurance policies against all the uncertainties. That's just not, not available to us. So, no, I'm, I'm a massive um, believer in embracing the uncertainty. And, and the only way to, I think, get away from this sense of, oh, it's such an uncertain world, oh, it's such a terrible time, is, is look at history and look at what it was like, even for my grandfather, uh, to suddenly be told, oh, we're having a war over Belgium if you haven't got anything better planned, <laughs> come to the Western Front. It'll be great. I mean, uncertainty? I'll tell you uncertainty. My grandfather's life was one freaking uncertainty after another from the age of 17. Uh, thank you very much for your service. Now we're going to have a catastrophic recession because the war's over. Um, off he goes in search of his fortune in two of, of all places, Ecuador. Uh, lands back in Glasgow just in time for the Great Depression. And it it just keeps coming at him all his life. Smoking from early uh, adulthood, of course, uh, pays the price. Uh, but again, for reasons he couldn't know when he started smoking. So we actually have much more certainty than our grandparents or even our, 
our parents, I suspect. And yet we tell ourselves, oh, the unbearable uncertainty of living in, in 2021. I love the fact that you call your podcast what, what you call it and that you're described as, is it jaded journalists? Yep. Um, uh, A Dom's turn of phrase, yes. Is that by you or by Apple? But it is, as, as somebody who's at least partly a jaded journalist, I mean, jaded journalists of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your certainty. <laughs> New tagline. We're going to sample this little clip and use it as our ad and just... Nobody needs to know that this is yeah. you speaking and not me. <laughs> Just they'll be slightly disappointed by the Israeli accent instead of the wonderful Scottish. The, the, the last question was going to be about like, just like this tiny topic of China, but I'm just going to smuggle in... Uh, one and a half question just before, just to make sure, just because of recent events. I wonder if you have any 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 brief comment that you want to make about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, just to get yourself in trouble before you move to China. <laughs> oh, boy. No, there's nothing that can be said in, in, in a tweet about that. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, if you want to do another podcast, uh, I can recommend some people who really understand the subject. I... Uh, I'm I'm in deep uh, despair about much of the the coverage. I had to turn the BBC World Service off this morning, which I rarely do, as I was shaving because I found the the uh, interviewers questioners to an Israeli spokesman so infuriating. And uh, please spare me the, uh, the 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 new iteration which I see Ilan Omar has run with of Palestinian Lives Matter. Um, no, no, I, I think anybody who tries to simplify this into a soundbite is, uh, is, is, uh, is guilty of that, that terrible simplification that I talked about earlier. And you avoided the trap. But since you offered, who do you recommend for the Israel-Palestine conflict? Who should I reach out to? The, there was a very good essay that I read the other day by an Israeli historian whose name, I'll need to refresh my memory about it, was the best, I'll, I'll send you the email. We'll, um, we'll put it in the show notes. He's not a friend of mine, but it was a very fine and insightful essay, dispassionate uh, and insightful about the, the, the myth of a peace process and the obvious de facto death of t the two-state solution. And I thought it was one of the best things I've read on the subject in a long time. He would be somebody that that would give a nuanced a nuanced account. So, to conclude on another happy topic, China. This is a topic that we keep coming back to. Usually, as an aside, we spoke to Israeli journalist Nadavial. We spoke to Ike Freeman, who you actually, I believe, you know, was your uh, research assistant. That's right. But more than that, my student Ike Freeman is my student at Harvard, and uh, we have uh, remained in close contact as he's moved on to uh, doctoral studies at Oxford and his book on the on One Belt, One Road is, is brilliant. Yeah, we interviewed him about it uh, a few weeks ago. I know you did. A theme that has recurred is um, the fact that if we are heading towards Cold War II, which we shamelessly used it in, uh, in the headline for that episode, despite Ike resisting the comparison, clearly well-trained in the art of resisting oversimplistic analogies, is that like this is this is uh, something that at the very least he can say most countries would wish would try to avoid. Nobody's interested in a new Cold War, Europe least of all. But if we are heading towards a conflict, 
then Europe is probably going to sit this one out. And so the, the ramifications of that are fascinating to me. And I know that, that economic history is your field, but I suspect that we've discussed at length the economic incentives involved with Ike. So I want to ask you more on the cultural thinking. So assuming that you agree with this impression that China is going to stay out of this one, that Nadav's and Ike's assessments are true, is there any meaning to the idea of the West, not geographically, but as an idea of a block of nations that stand for liberalism, human rights, free markets, democracy, free speech, civil liberties, put aside the very legitimate skepticism as to what extent that was ever really the case, but narratively a PR tool as a marketing idea without having a highly motivated block that at least we can tell ourselves stands for these things, are we losing something? I don't think it's necessarily the case that, that Europe will be non-aligned in Cold War II. By the way, I think Cold War II has been going for some time, and so did the Chinese. But we are, as in the first Cold War, taking some time to realize uh, <laughs> that it's begun. That lethargy. Uh, so I'm much more... Uh, I'm unequivocal about this. We're in Cold mm. War II... Uh, and I think the Europeans... Will Your be student is more nuanced than you. Well, I taught him well. Um, <laughs> the first thing I teach my students is, it's okay to disagree with me. Indeed, you'll do better if you do. But my view is that we're in Cold War II, and I think that Europe will be forced out of non-alignment by the, the realities of, of the Chinese challenge, and that that is already happening. And that post-Merkel, uh, even a, a Green Party-led Germany will in fact be tougher on China than Germany has been. The other point to make, though, is that ultimately the term West is going to be hard to apply when the, the Second Cold War is essentially a trans-Pacific affair. And what really will matter is the United States relationships with India, uh, with Japan, with Australia, with Taiwan – Europe will not be non-aligned, but it will not be the central uh, battlefield of a potential hot war. The battlefield of a hot war will be on the other side of the world. So the Western ideals, if uh, I can you know, borrow your phraseology, are actually alive and well in uh, Asia and Australasia. Hmm. The the Australians, I think, were quicker than we were to recognize that under Xi Jinping, China had switched back to totalitarian mode and was engaged in a series of aggressive moves, influence operations, as well as cyber warfare. They certainly, I think, share a good number of the fundamental uh, values related to liberty that you were talking about. And when you go to Taiwan, it's impressive how committed they are to democracy, uh, the rule of law, and individual freedom. So I think the values at issue in Cold War II are very similar to the values, the ideological issues of Cold War I, but the geography is going to be completely different. I'm, I'm, if we get to keep the values, I can, I'm very happy to jettison the phrase the West, which I think has outlived its usefulness already. Yes. 
I think so too. Historically, it, it had a very clear and distinct meaning uh, in Cold War One, but it's now right. going to become a more and more cumbersome term that will probably confuse us about the nature of Cold War Two, which you know is going to be much more about Taiwan than Berlin. Let's face it. Right, Neil. This has been such a pleasure, and thank you so much. Well, thank you both for great questions. And if 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 occasionally I looked completely stupid. Uh, it was because your audio was being disrupted by the Stanford Wi-Fi to the point of near unintelligibility. <laughs> oh, no. uh, so luckily, you were able to interpret them despite the <laughs> interference. Well, yet yet again, higher higher ed got in our way. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Great, great discussion. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the Twitters and Instagram. Come and argue with us. Share us with your friends and enemies. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, stay sane. Um, would you mind finishing the, the count so we can sync the sound later? Okay. So one, two, three. Four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine. Perfect. Thank you. That was the trick question, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's gonna be the headline yeah. yeah it'll turn out that 789 is a white supremacy code like like that hand gesture and i'll be outed it was all just a caper to get you cancelled yeah again. yeah 789 is the signal to storm the capital and i just didn't know and i'll be like no i had no idea i just thought it was like numbers <laughs> a likely story ferguson resign at once <laughs> I'm I'm surprised you were so quick to uh, to oblige. <laughs> I just yeah, just soft. I am a, just an, an an easy mark. Oh well. <laughs>